0: invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 18. If you have your uh, phone and you um, you could choose to use it for good this morning, and scroll, open an app, and even turn to your Bible there if you like. Um, how, whatever you have, please turn and uh, look at Luke, chapter 18 with us this morning. I would remind you that as we walk through the book of Luke uh, until... Uh, Resurrection Sunday, that we are traveling along with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. Back in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 51, it says, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go towards Jerusalem. He's also reminded of this along the way, of chapter 13, that Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. And on this path to Jerusalem, Jesus is engaging and talking, discussing matters, different matters of discipleship. If you want to know what's important to Jesus, one of the things that I'm doing right now in my own personal Bible study is beginning at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. I'm just reading, and I'm trying to read over and over again, up until Resurrection Sunday, the things that Jesus says on this road to Jerusalem. These are important matters to Jesus, important matters of discipleship. As you look at the candles here, this is a reminder to us that as Jesus is on this road to Jerusalem, we are nearing the crucifixion. And what we'll say, we're we're going to have a Good Friday service where we will blow out the last candle. And it's to emphasize that this is the darkest day in all the earth, the darkest day of all time, that Jesus in his death bore the sin of all humanity, that whoever would trust in him would have life and life forevermore. And so let these candles be a picture to you of what is happening. Relive it with Jesus, this road to Jerusalem. As we look at chapter 18 this morning, we're going to look at two parables on prayer. I've gotten creative with the title and named the sermon, Two Parables on Prayer. (laughs) We're going to look at the practice of prayer, and then we're going to look at the foundation for prayer. The practice of prayer and the foundation for prayer. I hope that you will open your bulletin that you received at the door and take out the notes in there. But as we begin, it's always important to know the context, the context of what Jesus is saying, of what he's talking about. So as we begin in chapter 18 this morning, we're actually going to read from chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, just to catch the context of what Jesus is saying about, about prayer. If if you were to look at the manuscripts or some of the manuscripts that were used back in this time period, you didn't have, and as I've said before, you didn't have these titles right before each chapter or each section. And the sections weren't even necessarily divided. There were barely any spaces in what they were writing. And so everything was very connected. This is difficult for us to see sometimes because of the way that things are laid out bef- before us. But everything is very connected, and so it is important that we always read what comes before so we can catch the context of what Jesus is saying. So will you stand with me this morning, and we're going to begin in chapter 17 of verse 22, as we focus on these two parables. The Pharisees have just asked when the kingdom of God would come, when Jesus was going to bring God's reign, eternal reign, to earth. And then in verse 22, he says, turning to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, people will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, when the Son of Man comes, it will be obvious. Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. And the disciples said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you've given to us for our instruction, for our sanctification, Lord, for our salvation. Lord, please make clear what might be very unclear to us. Lord, please show us, Lord, how might we might be in relationship with you. How we might obey you and follow you. How we are to pray. To engage with you. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you're God, that you reign on high. But yet you consider man. That you would love us and bestow your kindness on us. Please speak to us very clearly this morning, Father. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So why do we go all the way back to chapter 17, verse 22, and read of all of these things about the end times? This is what Jesus is talking about, right? He is talking about the end times. When he is going to return the second time, the last time. It is because when we get into this parable in chapter 18 he's coming off this discussion about the end times and in verse 22 of chapter 17 he says to the disciples the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it in other words the days are going to get long and they're going to get difficult and you are going to want to see me. You are going to hope that I will return that day, that moment, that hour. And people are going to tell you, there he is, there he is. And he says, don't go searching for it. It's going to be obvious. So verse 17, uh, verse 22 of chapter 17 tells us the days are going to come. They're going to get difficult. And then in chapter 18, he tells us how to handle the difficult days. Look at 18.1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And not lose heart. You see, the days are going to come, they're going to get difficult, and you're going to long to see the Son of Man. You're going to long for Jesus' return. And so in 18.1, he tells us, you ought always to pray. And when you long for that return, you should not lose heart. His challenge to the disciples for prayer is in the context of a discussion on the end times, on eternal life. And so prayer, in this case, is very related to eternal life. So as we discuss this practice of prayer, we should always keep in mind that this is related to our eternal destination, our eternal life. This is how these are connected. Now, in eighteen one, he says, and, and it does the same in the next parable that we will discuss. He gives kind of a, a reason that he's telling the parable, the purpose of this parable. He says, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, this not lose heart, it does mean don't be discouraged, don't quit. But at the same time, it, it has a connotation of don't. Go to evil. Don't turn to evil. See, the truth is when we stop praying, when we lose heart, and this is what happens when we lose heart, we get discouraged, is we stop praying. When that happens, we turn towards evil. You see, prayer and our faithfulness to the Lord are interconnected. When we're praying, it encourages faithfulness, it encourages expectancy. We pray and we wait for God to do something. We are trusting Him that He does act. And so prayer encourages faithfulness in our lives. And so he's saying, you ought always to pray. And in always praying, you will not only not be discouraged, but you will also not turn to evil. Prayer is a means, a deterrent to doing evil, to bad behavior. This is going to be the purpose of this parable, to encourage us. To keep us faithful, trusting in the Lord. Now, let's move to the parable. We're going to see two aspects of the parable. First, we're go- we are going to see a perseverance. We're going to see two characters, the judge and the widow. And in these, this judge and widow, Jesus is going to bring out two very important aspects of prayer. That people are to persevere and that God will respond. Two aspects, that people are to persevere in prayer and that God will respond to prayer. Let's look at these characters as we, as we begin. It says in verse 2, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This judge, he has no conviction No conviction at all. He doesn't care about what God thinks of him, and he doesn't care about what any man thinks of him. He only serves himself for his own purposes, his own ends. This judge has no reason to listen to some sad, poor woman. No sob story. No sob story is going to be enough to convince him to do differently than he wants to do. This judge only serves himself. But the widow, there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, we don't know, we don't have a big description of this widow. But what we do know comes simply from the culture. That widows were easily oppressed during this time. This is why in the law, in the law, back in the Old Testament, God always told his people, take care of the orphans. Don't take care of the widows. These are people who will often not have a voice in society. They are easily oppressed. And so just by being a widow, we don't need a description. We know that just simply by being a widow, this woman was easily oppressed. It's likely that this judge was taking away all her property to the extent that she had nothing left to live on. She had no one to support her. This woman had nothing and so she is coming to him and she says, give me justice against my adversary. Now, what is it that is praised about this widow? What is it that is to be applicable to us in our prayer? Well, the judge says, it says that the judge refused to grant her this justice, But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man... Remember, he cares nothing about people, nothing about God... Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice... So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now this is funny because this beat me down actually means to give a black eye. In some sense, what this widow was doing, continually coming to this judge... In some sense, she could even hurt him. Now, this is so odd. She's a a measly widow, a woman with no voice in society. Yet, she was so persistent that this judge who cared nothing about people and nothing about God finally said, I've got to do something to get this woman off me. This woman was going to maybe beat him up, whatever, he was going to lose his reputation for his career. Now, again, he doesn't care what men think, but he cares about his ends, right? Now, if he's not getting his money, that's a problem for him. And so, it is praiseworthy that she continues to come to this judge. She's persistent. Now, again, this is unique for this society. She's a widow. She should have just accepted her status in society. But she doesn't. She keeps going. She demands that she would be noticed, that she would be recognized. How is this similar to how we're to pray? In verse 7, Jesus says, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? You see, Jesus is saying that his people are to be persistent in prayer. They're to be continually coming to him, pouring out. And again, it's not just this simple just asking. It's crying, crying to him day and night. This is an intense type of prayer. So as the woman continually comes to this judge, as she perseveres and demands that she would be noticed, God's people in your prayer life are to continually go before God and pray, to cry out. Now what does the woman pray for? She prays that she would be given justice against her adversary. And it says in verse 7, as Jesus creates this analogy, will not God give justice to his elect? Now, this is an odd thing to pray, isn't it? How are Christians to pray for God's justice? How often do you pray for God's justice? Well, I think there's something that we can learn from the early church. Will you turn with me to the book of Acts? The book of Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 23 through 31. Just so you're aware of what's going on here, the apostles have just been imprisoned and then they were released. They were told to never speak the name of Jesus again. And so we find them returning to the group, the rest of the disciples, in chapter 4, verse 23. It says in verse 23, Acts chapter 4, when they were released, they've just been released out of prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they, the group, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them? Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointing, anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What were the disciples experiencing in this time? They were sharing the word of God. They were sharing the grace and kindness of Jesus. And yet, even in sharing good news, they were imprisoned. They were punished. They were beaten. And so they asked that God would grant them boldness to continue to speak the word. And that as they speak the word with boldness, God would confirm the word by His power by His power in doing miracles, by His power in healing people. You see, the disciples were shown injustice. People railed against the, very, the truth of God Himself. This is an injustice. This is difficult for us to understand sometimes, but we've mentioned in a couple of services recently Pastor Youssef Nadarkhani in Iran. He's imprisoned and he's on death sentence. It's possible that he's been killed. I haven't heard recently. Because of his faith and because he will not reject Christianity and turn to Islam. Do you think he prays for justice? That he would be shown justice? You see, when... We are hurt for speaking the truth that is injustice. And so, in a very great sense, when we're praying in an eternal manner, we're praying, God, will you grant justice to your people? Will you show that what they say is truth? Will you show that what they are doing is from you? So God's people in Acts chapter 4, they pray for justice in a sense, that they would be able to speak God's word boldly and that God would confirm it by his power. But there's another way in which we pray for eternal vindication. Revelation 6.10, you can just listen to this. Now what's happening in Revelation 6 is John, seeing the vision in Revelation, is is seeing the martyrs. The martyrs of the faith, he's seeing them as he sees this vision of heaven. These are people who have been brutally killed for their faith in Jesus, for following him. And so the martyrs, crying out in heaven, it says in Revelation 6.10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? If you read the psalm, you will hear time after time God's people saying, "How long, O Lord, how long will you do de- before you will defend us? Will you will defend our cause against the wicked, against those who would slay us because we follow you?" You see, God's people, as they speak the truth and as the truth is denied, the truth is rejected. God's people are shown a sense of injustice, a type of injustice. And so what Jesus is saying is that God's people should pray. They should cry out day after day, night after night. God, will you vindicate us? Will you show that your word is truth? Even last night in an airport, I was able, had the opportunity to share with someone the gospel. And they didn't accept it. They rejected it. They argued against it in every way possible. God's people should pray that his word would be shown to be true, just like those in Acts prayed. God, show that your word is true. As we present it, may you confirm it by your power, by miracles, in whatever way you desire. But God, show that your word is true. Grant us justice. And so Christians, as this woman asks for justice, Jesus is saying that God's people should cry out for justice. And if you're not doing it for yourself, for goodness sake, do it for those who are being killed for their faith. Those who have to meet underground because they'll be arrested and beaten for their faith. Pray for justice. That God would bring His justice. Now, there's another aspect of this. We see that our responsibility is to persevere in prayer, or to continue to knock at the door, to go to God day, after no- day and night, and to pray fervently. But we also see that God responds We see in this parable that God does respond to us. Now, the analogy that Jesus makes here is that if an unrighteous judge will finally give in after this woman consistently goes to him, then surely a righteous God will grant what his people ask. This is what he says in verse 6. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God? Give justice to his elect who cry to him day after night. People persevere. God responds. Even an unrighteous judge answers a nagging request. God, a righteous judge, will answer his people. Now, let's look at verse 7. The end of this. And this is where the text can seem difficult. God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day after day and night. Will he delay long over them? Verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. What does this mean? Here lies the difficulty for our experience. What does it mean that we will pray, that we will cry out for justice, and that God will give it speedily? I would say that there are probably some of you here who have endured trials some sort of injustice, some difficulty, whatever it may be, for long, long periods, drawn-out periods, and you might say that you don't feel delivered. God, what does it mean that you would answer us speedily? As we said a moment ago, the psalmist even cries out constantly, How long, O Lord? The martyrs, how long, O Lord? You see, in the text, there's this inherent tension. That God answers quickly, yet endurance will be required. Notice verse 8, the end of verse 8. Jesus says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's again referring back to the endurance of God's people. Will they endure? God is going to answer speedily, he says, but when I come, are you still going to be praying? Are you still going to be waiting anxiously? Praying day and night that God would bring justice? Notice this tension. Don't miss this. That God says He is going to answer quickly, but endurance is going to be required. You're going to have to wait patiently. So, some have suggested that this speedily just means that when it happens, it happens. So, In one sense, it may take a long time, and we may feel like it's not coming, but when God's justice comes, it's here. And all of a sudden, everything is different. Everything is different. This seems to be the point that Jesus is making. God will answer, He does answer prayer, and He will answer it quickly. But it will require us to endure and to be patient. So, in concluding this particular parable, we pray with persistence because God answers prayer, but also because to not continue in prayer is to forfeit the faith. This is the point Jesus makes at the end at the beginning of the parable, that you might endure. You see, when you stop praying, when you stop waiting with expectancy, you no longer have faith in the Lord that he will act. And so I would ask you, believer, are you praying, waiting for God's return, for the return of Christ when he will make all things right? He will. He will come. He will redeem you. Are you praying for his justice, that he would vindicate us, that he would show his righteousness? Again, this parable, this, this, the point of Jesus' making here is focused on eternity. That believers would continue, that they would pray fervently, and that when he comes, they would be found faithful, ready, still praying, still waiting. Still waiting. Now the next parable. Verse 9. We find that Jesus has told this parable to his disciples, but evidently there are some others standing nearby. Listen to verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see, Jesus' disciples are standing nearby and they're hearing Jesus' challenge for them to pray and to wait eagerly for His return. But there are also some standing nearby who in their prayers only seek to affirm themselves. These are those who trust in themselves that they're righteous, and they treat others with contempt. Listen to the rest of this parable. This is chapter 18 of Luke, verses 9 through 14. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, "'God, I thank you that I'm not like other men.' Extortioners, unjust, adulterers Or even like this tax collector over here I fast twice a week I give tithes of all that I get But the tax collector Standing far off Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven But beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner Jesus says I tell you This man went down to his house justified Rather than the other For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here we see the foundation for prayer, and the foundation for prayer, if you're taking notes, is reconciliation. God's people must pray, but they must first know what the foundation for prayer is, and that foundation is reconciliation. Again, we see two characters, just like the parable before a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee is the epitome of religiosity. Now, as we've looked at this, uh, these chapters the last few weeks, we've seen that the Pharisee, he gets in trouble a little bit. The Pharisees are not always looked on highly by Jesus. But we should not forget that they are still the standard in this society for faithfulness to God. They wear all the religious garb. They are at every church service. They know how to pray like no one else. They stand in public and they pray and they use wonderful words. And then they fast, as we see in this Pharisee. Every week, they give. They are faithful in all their religion. And so, while they have been scorned a little bit in the past, this this Pharisee, as you as Jesus introduces this parable, and he says, "There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. If we asked which one's going to heaven, well, it's the Pharisee, of course, that has the greater shot. The tax collector is a crook. He's not even allowed in the in the inner temple. He is dishonest. He is a rich man who is taken from others." And yet, in this story, he becomes the example of faithfulness, of trust in God. So, the Pharisee. Let's look at what his prayer first. First, we see that this Pharisee stands by himself. We'll see that the tax collector will also stand by himself. But it seems that the text is trying to convey that they stand by themselves for different reasons. The Pharisee was probably standing by himself somewhere in the temple where he could be seen by everyone, where his prayer could be heard by everyone around. And he prays thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, the Pharisee's prayer begins very good by biblical standards. It's actually an introduction to a Thanksgiving psalm. Psalms like Psalm 30 or Psalm 138 where he says, God, I thank you. But the problem with the Pharisee's prayer is that in the Psalms, the psalmist follows with God's acts of redemption and all that God has done. But here the Pharisee follows with what he has done. You see, he substitutes God's acts for his acts. One writer said of this Pharisee, he glances at God, But he contemplates himself. He looks up to God and he begins to thank him, but then follows by looking at all that he has done. It really appears that the entire reason this guy has come to the temple has little to do with God and really a lot just to do with him, right? I mean, listen to this. I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he rattles off a few. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is beyond even the law. This guy has gone over and above. He feels very good about himself. We can see. He's affirmed in his faithfulness and his own religiosity. And I would like to ask you, how many of you come to church Because it makes you feel good. I know some of you have heard that before. People talking about the church they go to and they say, I just feel good when I leave. I like that church because the worship really just excites me and it just makes me feel good about myself and who I am. Are there any of you in here who come to church or go to church because it makes you feel good? Friends, this is this Pharisee. He goes because it makes him feel good. He affirms himself when he comes. I pray, I hope you see, the purpose of church is not to make you feel good. When you come to Crosspoint, we don't desire to make you feel good about yourself. And that sounds extremely harsh, but you should know It's not about you, and it's not about your goodness. This is what the tax collector will show us. Before we excuse ourselves from any kind of resemblance to this Pharisee, we should really look at the details of his prayer. We've read it a couple times, but let's let's really dig deep. He begins by thanking God for what he has not done. Remember, I thank you that I'm not like other men, but he names what these men do, extortioners, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So in other words, I thank you that I haven't had sex with other women, with other men's wives. I thank you that I have not stolen from anyone else. I thank you that I've not shown injustice to anyone like other people have. So he begins by thanking God for what he's not done. Now the problem with this approach is that examining ourselves in this way can make us feel really good it allows us to avoid the things that we didn't do that we should have done or the things that are going on in our heart. You see, he's just evaluating the exterior. Some writers have really helped us by referring to sins of omission and sins of commission. If you're taking notes, you can write those down. Sins of omission and sins of commission. Now, sins of omission are those things that we should have done that we did not do. You see, the Pharisee is just talking about the things that he didn't do. But the problem is that there are many things that we should do that we don't do. The Pharisee doesn't talk about those. So those are sins of omission, sins of uh, disobedience, of resistance to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit would say to you, do this, give, go help this person. Witness. Whatever it may be, it's where you don't obey. But then there are sins of commission, sins in which you actively engage. And this is what the Pharisee is really referring to, that he hasn't participated in sins of commission. But, again, he doesn't look at his own heart. There's, there's a quote here that's helpful. It was from Timothy Keller's book, The Prodigal God. And that book particularly focuses on the uh, the parable of the prodigal son. And I, didn't, I used a lot of that book in looking at the parable of the prodigal son. But I want to use another quote here. Keller tells us it's useless for us to focus only on our specific behaviors. This is what the older brother does in the parable of the prodigal son, if you remember. He he says that he stayed with the father, that he worked for him. But the problem is, our specific behaviors don't help us see our hearts, which is the very place that God looks. This is what this Pharisee does. He looks at his specific behaviors and he says, I'm good, I'm being faithful in everything. So, it's useless for us to focus only on our specific behaviors. Christian, are you looking into your heart? Non believer, you think you're a good person, but have you examined your heart? The place where hate resides? The place where lust resides? You see, in our hearts, we are corrupt. Let's look at the tax collector. It says in verse 13, the tax collector standing far off. You see, the difference is that the Pharisee stood by himself where he could be seen by everyone. He's in the middle of the temple courts where everyone could hear him. But the tax collector, he's standing away, far away, because he's even fearful. He is not arrogant enough to attempt to stand in the place that represents the presence of God. He is humble. He stands far off, not looking for other people to see him or to hear him, but wanting to be with God alone and hoping that God would hear his prayer. And his prayer goes like this, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's it. Now, these prayers, Parts that say he wouldn't lift up his eyes to heaven. Again, he's not arrogant enough. He's humble and he's just hoping God will have mercy. He beats his breast. This is another sign of just of repentance. Of sadness over his sin. But God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A very short prayer, very simple prayer, but filled with meaning. When it says, be merciful to me. The word here is the word, if you've heard, propitiate or propitiation. It's the word that means make atonement for me. God, pardon my sin. Now, I would remind you that this man is praying in the temple or near the temple. Now, what goes on at the temple? Prayers and sacrifices. As he prays, he can smell the sacrifices that are being given, that are being presented, that are for sin. This man knows that the forgiveness of his sins is nothing small, but it's costly. There are lambs being presented all day long for sin. And so he knows that the forgiveness of his sin is not something simple. It is big. It is costly. And he says, God, be merciful to me. Not just be merciful. God, make atonement for me. Pay for my sin. Reconcile me to Yourself. God, will you make a way? He's a tax collector. He knows he's a great sinner. He has stolen. He's been dishonest in every way possible. Yet, his simple prayer is, God, make a way for me. I'm a sinner. And here's what I would say to you. The basis for God hearing our prayers is only his mercy. It's only his mercy. This is what the Pharisee missed. He thought it was about his goodness that God would hear his prayers. But the tax collector shows us that it has nothing to do with our goodness, but it has to do with God's kindness. God, will you make a way? Will you reconcile me to yourself? Only if God is gracious, if he lends us his presence, his ear will our prayers be heard. The tax collector recognizes this. And he asked that his sins would be pardoned and that God would reconcile him to himself. Jesus says, commenting on the parable, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 14, the beginning part, he went down to his house justified. This means that through this simple prayer, this man went down to his house, right with God. While he's a tax collector, wretched in the sight of everyone else around, this man, rather than the Pharisee, goes down to his house in right relationship with the Lord, full access to the Father. And all he prayed was, God, pardon me, have mercy on me, the next portion, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the second time Jesus has used this phrase uh, here in this, in this story, in the book of Luke. It seems that Jesus make, wants to make a point with this. You see, it's the natural way, it's general wisdom that in this life, those who boast in themselves will be humbled. This is the story Jesus tells when he first uses this, that those who go to sit in a high chair who, at dinner with someone, you think you deserve the, the chair right beside the host. You don't want to do that because then you might be asked and humiliated to go sit somewhere else. You should sit somewhere lower. Not being arrogant in yourself. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Here, Jesus, rather than just a general application, makes an eternal application. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. Just like this Pharisee who believed in his goodness, you will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's the truth. Here's the foundational point Dependency in this life is unavoidable. Dependency in eternity is unavoidable. Friend, are you trying to make it on your own? Are you trying to get by by your own strength, by your own power, by your own goodness? You can't even sustain your breath. You can't control your destiny. None of us here are invincible. We will all die. And are you like the Pharisee or are you like the tax collector? I would ask you, have you prayed a prayer like this tax collector? Now, I'm not talking about just repeating the same words. I'm I'm just saying, have you said, God, will you pardon me? It doesn't matter how fancy it is. It matters in your heart. This man won't even look up to heaven. And he says, God, just, just forgive me. God, reconcile me. I wonder if you've prayed a prayer just asking God to pardon you. This is the foundation for all prayer. Reconciliation. If you haven't been reconciled to God, then you can't pray. So this is the first step. This is to know God. Will you just say, God, pardon me? You know, it's amazing that... If you ask people in America, not if they're Christian or things like that, you'll get different answers, but if you ask if people pray, almost every person in the nation, practically in the world, would say in some sense that they pray. But if you ask, have you been reconciled? Have you been reconciled to God? Do you know Him? That's a different question. So, The practice of prayer, man's perseverance, God will respond. But the foundation of prayer, reconciliation. Christian, cross point member, what's the application? Will you continue in prayer? Will you pray for this body? Are there people here, friends, whoever it may be, who aren't here? There are matters of prayer here. The pastor search team, as Mr. Al mentioned this morning, is meeting this afternoon. Are you persevering in prayer? Your family, your relationship with God, are you persevering in prayer? In a moment, we're going to sing. I would ask you to stand now. And if you haven't been reconciled to God, will you just after the service, even now if you would like, will you come? Will you come? And then Christian, will you persevere in prayer? Will you continue seeking God in prayer? Will you pray for this body, make a commitment to just pour your heart out in prayer, day and night? let's pray father we thank you for your goodness that you would hear our prayers lord that you would forgive our sins and that you would ask us to come to your throne of grace lord to pour out our hearts our weaknesses father and all our failures and that you would hear us and that you would show graciousness and kindness lord we are the tax collector We are great sinners, and we ask that you would be merciful. Lord, if we are coming here to feel good about ourselves, may you expose our sin, Lord. Show us, Father. Help us to see that we are not good, but you are good, and you will be forgiving towards us. And Lord, for us as believers, that you would help us. Teach us to pray, Father. Teach us how we we might walk with you and persevere with you in prayer. Lord, how we might pray day and night. And that you might keep us from evil. Lord, from being discouraged. And that you might bring justice. Lord, as you return and set all things right. We pray this in Jesus' name.